You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks and by film geeks. And this is a little filler bonus episode. So, as regular fans of the show will know, I'm currently working away from home and we've not found time to watch any new films or get some time to sync up and record another episode. So what we're going to bring to you today is a bonus episode filled with some of the picks of previous episodes' deep dives. I hope you enjoy this little bonus interim and we will be back with a normal episode next week. In addition, for those of you who don't listen to us on No Barriers Radio, I wholeheartedly recommend checking out this week's show for that station because we've done another bonus episode exclusively for No Barriers, which is all about needle drops, those perfect moments of pop music used in films that resonate and remind you of the film each time you hear them. So head on over to No Barriers Radio this week when the show airs on Thursday or catch it up on their on-demand service. Anyway, on with the look back at some old deep dives. Andy and I have been doing our deep dive on particular films. Last week we looked at The Abyss. This time we've gone for a complete change of heart, uh, gone something a little bit closer to home, something I consider a classic, and that's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. From the people who brought you the 39th anniversary re-release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail and are already at work on the 41st anniversary re-release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail comes the long-awaited 40th anniversary re-release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. Back in cinemas in a special new edition. I told them we already got one. With up to 25% more peril. No, it's too perilous. We are the knights who say... Bring your friends, carry coconut shells, wear a fancy dress. This isn't my nose, it's a false one. You could even sing along if you like. Uh, stop that. You're not going into a song while I'm here. See it again for the first time on the big screen. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberry. Or if you've never seen it, see it now for the first time. Or see it for the first time since you last saw it. Or if you're very old or very ill, see it for what may be the last time. I'm not dead! I think I I could pull through, sir. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Back in cinemas for the first time since the last time. God be praised. Okay, so Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 1975 uh, British comedy, starring, of course, the Monty Python team. This was their first, not their first movie, because they did uh, now for something completely different, which, which was basically a clip show but shot on film which was some of their greatest hits from the tv series but this was their their first real their first real solo project uh, as and you almost got to talk about monty python like they're a band because this was them breaking out of tv um written performed by the team of graham chapman john cleese terry gilliam terry jones who we recently lost eric idle uh, michael palin it was directed by gilliam and jones it was conceived during hiatus between the third and fourth series of the of the BBC series. And that was an interesting time for the team because that was the point at which Cleese in particular was getting less and less enamoured with the whole thing and like didn't want to just continue churning out more Python stuff. Everything needed to be done for a reason. And, you know, they were starting to break apart. Uh, Chapman was on the peak of his alcoholism and an absolute mess to work with. So this was a, a very strange time for the team, which all led to this film. It's my favourite of the, of the Python films. I think there's much plaudit for Life of Brian, which is, which is genius. Don't get me wrong. I'm not taking anything away. And when I say it's my favourite, it's like trying to pick your favourite child. I just have more love for Monty Python and the Holy Grail than I do do for Life of Brian. And but that's just by the merest, merest uh, nth of a degree. I just prefer Holy Grail. It's so much fun to watch. I mean, I, I must have watched this on a loop during my student years. I loved it so much. I, I, I'm with you on this. This is my favourite Python screen outing. It just makes me cry. Every time I watched it. Now I watched this recently. I introduced my son to it. It was only seven, and we were. I was using a quote. Uh, it was the knights who say knee, 
lie <laughs> and I had to explain what the Knights of St. Nee is. And he said he wanted to watch it. And I wasn't sure. I didn't think he'd get it. And and he's absolutely he's absolutely bowled over by it. It's the film that he he, he can quote. Um he thinks everything from the Trojan Rabbit to uh um and we've just been out in the car talking about coconuts and swifts. You know, it's <laughs> it really is. Um, it really is a, a film that that hasn't lost any of its impact, any of its humour. All these years later, forty odd years later, it's just a marvellous, ridiculously funny, heartwarming. And so much of it came about by pure lack of budget and accident. I mean, it, it got its investment for the film came from loads of individuals, including rock stars from Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Genesis, who all saw it as a good tax write-off at the time uh, when there was, like, wasn't it a 90% taxable on um, a lot of rock stars at the time? So they saw it as a good way to get a tax write-off. And the coconuts came about due to them running out of budget to get enough horses. They could only really afford one horse. So it was like, eh, well, let's just have someone following with coconuts. And even the, the locations, apparently they, they, re, they wanted to shoot in multiple castles and they found all the locations that they wanted to shoot for each of the individual castles. And the Department of Environment uh, turned them down. They banned them from it just as they were about to start shooting because apparently the Pythons, in Terry Gilliam's words, uh, they were told that they were doing things that were not consistent with the dignity and the fabric of the building. To which Terry Jones's reply was, "These places have been built for torturing and killing people, and you couldn't do a bit of comedy. Ridiculous." They ended up filming at uh, Dune Castle in in Glencoe, yep. which was privately owned, and then uh, and then used a lot of models for. Have you ever seen the series Outlander? Yes, it was filmed in the same place. They filmed. They both used uh, uh, Dune Castle, but yeah, that that was the primary location. Graham Chapman, he went so he went dry during the filming of it. Because, like I mentioned before, he was at the peak of his alcoholism for the years leading up to it getting made. And when they came to shoot him, he went. He decided, "I'm not going to drink. I'm going to take this seriously." Because he was forgetting his lines. It was all over the place. But as a result, he was suffering from DTs, and he was having anxiety attacks. He was shaking on set. He he had an immense fear of heights as a result of it. And so the the first scene that they were shooting was the the, the chasm scene with the like being asked the questions and then having to walk across the bridge and he couldn't do it. And so they had to get like someone else to act as him for doing the long shots of it. It it was, it's a film that so many things went wrong during the making of it. But all those things made it a better film. Yeah. It kind of makes the film work as a Python film because it feels surreal. It feels like it's a hodgepodge of ideas and a bit of a mess. And that's Python through and through. And that's why I've loved Python ever since I was a kid. Introduced to it through the TV series, like getting reruns on BBC. Everything fits together in this film. The Python's at the height. I mean, as you said, it was a low budget. It was something like $400,000. Box office was about $5 million. So they definitely, definitely made their money back. It was it was directed by Gilliam and Jones, who'd never directed a film before. So it was a huge learning experience for them in learning how to make a film. Uh, the cast described the, the novice directing style as employing the level of mutual disrespect always found in Python's <laughs> work. Everything works. It There is not a gag that falls short in this film. In every scene is a laugh-out-loud, quotable piece of comedy that is just priceless in a way that it, because it's rough and ready it, it captures more of more of medieval britain than the current version of king arthur directed by <laughs> guy Ritchie could fail yep. on, on every level to do because it's dirty and because it's, it's it is a rock and roll film it, it's, it's a punk rock film it's it's made on a shoestring it looks great. It's rough and ready out around the edges, and that's what makes it classic. And the writing of it makes it hysterically funny. It was interesting. Uh, I, I, as I've mentioned before, I'm listening through the autobiographies from various members of the Python team, and Cleese is one. When Cleese is talking about his early childhood, he's got a whole story about an early childhood trauma, which was when a really cute, cuddly rabbit, when he was, he must have been about four or five. He went to stroke it and it nipped him. And it, it, it 
really unnerved him and like he, he couldn't face rabbits from that point onwards. And it's like, was this was this where the idea for the rabbits being the big nasty beastie <laughs> came from? And it all makes sense that they were drawing on like little comical anecdotes of their own to throw into the script. And it, it's a, I mean, that, that scene is brilliant, especially like with John Cleese as Tim, the enchanter, talking about it. Like, Look at him. He's got great big teeth. Oh, and- it's classic. <laughs> I'm laughing it's now, a- just as you're doing <laughs> that. Uh, it's I mean, you mentioned the knights who say knee and knee and you know i i can also point out that they're no longer the knights who say knee they're the knights who go ekki 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 for tang for wee bong brr. it's just it just proves that low budget filmmaking is about when it's done well is about ideas and, and using locations to to be convincing uh, and that's why why it works it, it doesn't matter that it's low budget but that grimy gritty feel to it just adds to a certain authenticity to it that you saw Gilliam use again in Time Bandits, uh, and you saw Jones use the location on on uh, Life of Brian. Yeah, they they just just did it very well. I mean, right from the get go of the movie, in the opening credits, featuring pseudo Swedish subtitles, which turn into appeal to visit Sweden and see <laughs> the country's moose and the majestic there, fjords. <laughs> every second of this film, there is a gag. And those gags, which is what good comedy should do, constantly, constantly pay off. It doesn't matter about the plot because it's not a film about plot. There is a story. It's about the Holy Grail. That's all you need to know. It's individual scenes, vignettes almost, that that, that will make you laugh time and time again. And you can watch it and then 10 minutes later, go and watch it again and find something funny in it or just laugh out loud at the gag you've just seen. It's that good a comedy. <laughs> and and what a finale an epic an epic finale <laughs> an epic finale it's the, i mean the, the finale is the only time that they seem to have uh, any other additional actors in it because the python cast play everybody in a multitude of roles and they clearly found some some extras um in the end and then there's a an unusual payoff and <laughs> i remember seeing it in the cinema and i, I and the film, for those who know, spoilers if you've not seen it, the film's only been out 40-odd years, <laughs> is the film just ends. And people in the cinema were sat waiting to see who was going to get it first because has this film really, really ended? It's com- complete Python. Even Daphnis from, like, throwaway lines, one of, them, one of the police who are arresting them, like, he takes the shield off one of them and goes, that's an offensive weapon, that is ignoring the sword and that always sets me chuckling <laughs> yeah there's so much depth to it there's there's so many reasons to revisit it if you're ever feeling down then just go back to monty python and the holy grail because as comedies goes it's perfect as you know folks we are all in some kind of isolation for how much longer it will continue and we can get back to the cinema and start reviewing stuff uh, who knows right now it might be weeks, might be months. But in the meantime, so we can talk about something in depth. We've been doing deep dives. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've done Princess Bride. We did Superman the movie. This week, uh, our challenge was to do a deep dive into Flash Gordon. Flash! Ah! You say it every word. Remove the Earth Woman. Prepare her for our pleasure. Flash! So, Flash Gordon, directed by Mike Hodges, produced by Dino De Laurentiis, uh, came out in 1980, starred uh, Sam J. Jones in the role of Flash Gordon, Melody Anderson. Dale Arden. Melody Anderson as Dale Arden, uh, a very young Timothy Dalton, a guy who used to be in Blue Peter, was in there as well, <laughs> written by uh, 
you can't everybody now just goes it's that guy who used to be in in blue peter and of course you can't <laughs> talk about flash gordon without mentioning brian blessed and to some extent the gordon's alive line more people remember that than they actually remember the film gordon's alive everyone does the impression i'm not going to as you've <laughs> just done it so as i said the thing is even when brian blessed does it he does it in different ways every time he does it and he's it's that's the iconography when it's actually of the film. done in the film it is very much a gordon's alive like a query it's like oh my god he's still alive but whenever he's asked to do it in like events and public speakings he bellows it. it's like gordon's alive so this kind of came out in the wake of Star Wars when every studio was looking for uh, a, a big budget science fiction film to throw at the Yeah, screen. I mean, Dino De Laurentiis had held, already held the rights to this well before Star Wars came out because uh, George Lucas apparently wanted to make Flash Gordon Interesting enough, in the early 70s. Yeah. And uh, Dino was having none of it. He didn't want this George Lucas bloke like messing up his idea. And so Lucas went off and made something called Star Wars instead and made a whole, whole load of money, at which point Dino went, hey, I want some of that money. I've got this material and started the process in getting it to the screen. And uh, I believe, was it Nick Rogue did a treatment on the film? Yeah, no, Nick Rogue was initially connected to uh, to bring the film to the big screen. There have been production drawings that have appeared. There have been, uh, I've even seen some storyboards from Nick Rogue's uh, version of it. In fact, before Nick Rogue, uh, Federico Fellini was set to, to yeah. direct it, but that was never made. Um, but Nick Rogue, Nick Rogue was hired. Of course, Nick Rogue, if you if you know your film stuff, was uh, was responsible for the man who fell to earth. A very stylistic director. Uh, his treatment of Flash Gordon didn't connect with what De Laurentiis wanted with it. Rogue was a big admirer of, of Alex Raymond, the original creator of the, of the strip. He loved well. the original comic strips, but Dino wanted to step away from the comic book and play on the comic elements rather than the comic book elements. At one point he considered hiring, and this would have been an amazing film, Sergio Leone to direct it. Yeah. Another, another huge fan of um, the Re Alex Raymond comic strips, apparently. Yeah, he, and that's why he turned it down because he didn't like what Dino's vision was. Yeah. He believed that the, the, this film should, should adhere to the, to the script. Mike Hodges, who'd made Get Carter uh, was brought on. And, and to some extent he was a director that, uh, would would be easier to control by Dino De Laurentiis and, and make the film that he wanted to. Lorenzo Semple was brought on to uh, write the script. As you remember, Lorenzo Semple created the Batman TV series. Uh, yep. He'd also written uh, Never Say Never Again, the uh, Sean Connery Bond film. No, let's not hold that against him. Yeah, well, that's the film to talk about at another date, interestingly enough. <laughs> um, but he wanted um, they wanted to make Flash Gordon humorous. And I think Semple had that camp element to his script writing. He also made, just pointed out that Lorenzo Semple Jr., even though he's known for Batman, made the very fantastic Three Days of the Concord, which is yeah. a stunning thriller. I remember reading a, I remember reading an interview with Semple where he actually, in hindsight, realised that making Flash Gordon a comedy caper was a terrible mistake, and it should have been given the more serious adventure approach instead, which would have possibly helped its reputation at the time when it got released because the film was a flop apart from in the uk oh yeah oh we embraced it over here yeah it <laughs> went down re ridiculously well in the uk became somewhat of a, of a, a short-lived phenomenon it does have a very european sensibility to it more so than than a u.s sensibility to it if you know what i mean we need to talk about the cast brian blessed Let, let's let's start with brian blessed prince Voltan, the winged leader what I love about the casting of Brian Blessed in this film is how much he embraced it, how much he loved it, and how much he doesn't disregard it. He still loves talking about it. If you bumped into him in the street and just said, oh my God, you were in Flash Gordon, he would bellow out, Gordon's alive at you, because he loved the character. And this goes back to his childhood. In one of his many autobiographical books, he talks about as a kid when him and his mates used to play Flash Gordon serials like as a kid, he would always insist that he plays Voltan. So when he was cast, it was a childhood dream coming true. And that's why he's embraced it. And that's why he's never been ashamed of being a part of this film. Uh, you're talking about the cast. Of course, Mike Svonsidao, who we, we lost recently, is, is just, he is Ming the Merciless. He is in every way he embodies Ming the Merciless indeed. He doesn't play it over the top. He plays it in a serious way. 
He doesn't embrace the comedy aspect of it. He plays the villain menacing. And he manages to move that character away from a sort of the racist stereotype that Ming the Merciless was yeah. back in the in the in the comic strips. Now poor Sam Sam J. Jones. The film that destroyed his career. Yeah. It, he had disagreements with Dino from the start. He didn't like the direction that it was going in. He thought that they should be doing other things. And he was very vocal about it on set. And so when it came to them taking a break and then editing together and then looking for pickups, he was never invited back for pickups and voice overdubs. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd heard this story for a long time that uh, that he'd been uh, he'd been redubbed by another actor. I'd always heard that it was uh, one of the Keach brothers, uh, not Stacey Keach, but perhaps James Keach. Um, yeah. But it turns out that it was a, a dramatic voice actor called Peter Marnica whose identity was long considered unknown, even to Jones. Even though at one point there was a sequel proposed, but once, uh, and a bit like the George Lazenby scenario, he walked out on it, they didn't come back, uh, I wasn't invited into post-production. And so so any ideas of a sequel, even as, as vague as they, they would have been, never materialised. There was, a, there's of course, the end question mark, which is the last shot of the film. His, his career struggled afterwards. Uh, he had bit parts in TV shows like The A-Team or small roles on direct-to-video releases. Um, do you remember the TV series that he was very short-lived, only 10 episodes in the late 80s, I The Highwayman? Yeah, I do. Oh, I loved that. Don't remember much about it, series. but I do oh, remember I, I, it. I do remember him being in it. because I was, have very fond memories of watching that. Because it was, oh my God, Sam J. Jones in a TV series. <laughs> Where is he now? Because <laughs> he always ended to go, Sam J. Jones, other than uh, appearing in, in Ted. Is where is he now? <laughs> Interesting to note that Max von Sydow, as Ming as well, insisted on being on set in full costume, even when it wasn't doing shots with him in frame. When they were doing the reaction shots, like with two-way conversations, he would insist on being there in full costume. And Sam J. Jones said, like, basically said to him, "Was like, you don't think you even need to be here? They're just doing pickups on me. They're getting my reactions. They're getting my past the conversations." And he just said, "Like, I'm here." to feed you your lines, and I fully expect you to do the same for me. That's professionalism. And I love that aspect that, you know, that, that can't have been the most comfortable of costumes to have got into. But he insisted on being there to make sure that everything was done right, and that if there was a chance to do something in a different way, he would know about it, so he'd be able to then insist on getting reshoots of his side of the conversations. Marvellous. Mentioned to Peter Wingard as well, as General Clytus, under really heavy... Um, costume design, the metal mask, the hooded robe, who really, really wanted that sequel to happen. Even though his character allegedly died, it's his hand that reaches for Ming's ring on the, the end question mark. And wouldn't we have loved to have seen him come back? I know that um, watching an interview with Peter Wingard from a few years before he died, and he said that he always hoped that he'd get that call saying, we're going to make Flash Gordon too, and we want you back. The film also starred Melody Anderson as Dale Arden. She had somewhat of a, a TV career afterwards. You can't forget that the, that the cast also had Topol in as Hans Zarkov. Yeah. Um, we mentioned Timothy Dalton. Ornella Muti as Princess Aura. Boy, we all remember Ornella Muti. Changed <sighs> a young man's life for many of us. Gosh, I, rem I remember a few things about her. Uh, and Richard O'Brien uh, from Rocky Horror <laughs> fame popped up in there as, uh, as Fico. So it had a great cast, a British cast. It had, a, as I said, it had a very British European sensibility. And again, you can't talk about Flash Gordon without mentioning the soundtrack because it was performed by, at that point, one of the biggest bands in the world, Queen. And the song, the song has almost again uh, lasted longer in our memories than the film does. It's it's had it's had a life of its own outside of the movie. The Queen soundtrack, not just that one track, which like the Flash Gordon theme. But every aspect of the theme score is marvellous. Brian May's screaming guitars and the, the wedding theme, uh, wedding march theme, is everything is a great listen. It's a great soundtrack and it definitely elevates the film above what it should have been. It didn't find its audience. So it's, as we said, it, it was a big success in the UK. Internationally, it was a disappointment. As a film, even though we love it, and we, we love it for the... For the right reasons, it's campy. It's 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 a fun romp. It is it's 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 got poor special effects. It has um, 
an all over the place script as far as as humor goes and tone it doesn't quite come together but it's one of those films which doesn't quite come together but it's still enjoyable it's a fun movie it's a film that i can go back to and enjoy and enjoy and enjoy and it's like it's like when we talked about highlander that we can identify the faults in that film but you can overlook them because you can embrace what the film was doing and you you get caught up in it this is one of those films that i just get caught up in it every time that i watch it and i'm happy to just pop this on at any time and i'm even happier that as we reported on the last show the uk box set edition for the 40th anniversary will be coming out in 10th of august who'd have thunk it would have been one of those films that that people celebrate 40 years on because it, it was it was much ridiculed in its reception but it's got a it's got a huge fan following that people like Edgar Wright it's their favorite film uh, Alex Ross the uh, client comic book artist names the film as one of his favorites of all time uh, of course we said it was mentioned in Ted there's there's a lot of love for this film and a lot of love for the fact that it it is so unique it does have for everything that's wrong with it it has a voice and it has a style and it has a sense of itself that that makes you think you know, this is one of those films where 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 everybody just goes. It, it worked for what it was. Is it a classic? It depends how you determine what you think a classic is. The fact that it that it's loved, the fact that it's a film that has its own identity and works works in its own right. Everything that's wrong about it is the reason that everything is right about it. So the other thing we've doing other than reviewing the latest films is we've been taking deep dives, and this week we decided on a film that I know that Andy loves and, and he knows I love because we're both massive fans of Wes Anderson. And that film is 19... I can't believe it came out in 1998. And I, it wow. feels like I watched it yesterday because it still feels fresh. Is Rushmore. I like your nurse's uniform, guy. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? Rushmore Academy's wealthiest alumnus has just met the woman of his dreams. I'm in love with her. There's only one problem. I was in love with her first. This February, the battle begins. You know, you and Herman deserve each other. You're both little children. I was going to try and have that tree over there fall on you. War does funny things to men. Rushmore. Now, this was the film for, for me where Wes Anderson really started to develop the style after his first film, Bottle Rocket. It stars uh, Jason Schwartzman in his film debut as Mike, who's an eccentric teenager, uh, and his friendship with a rich industrialist uh, played by Bill Murray called Herman Bloom, and their love of a common elementary school teacher, Rosemary Cross, played by Olivia Williams, who up until this film we'd not seen much of before. Uh, Co-written by Anderson and Owen Wilson. It launched the careers of Anderson, Schwartzman, uh, pushed Owen Wilson uh, in, into not only being a star, but into being a writer. It's a fantastic film that we both love. Why do we love this film, Andy? When I was sat and rewatched this over the past week, within the first five minutes, I found myself chuckling at the wit and loving the use of music and appreciating the framing. This film is an utter joy because of the skewed universe in which Anderson sets his films. And apparently this, the skewed reality that this feels like it's set in was described by Anderson himself as slightly heightened like a Roald Dahl novel. And it was an idea that him and Owen Wilson had come up with that all of the films like that they work on should have this kind of approach that it's almost real, but it's not quite, and it's a bit nonsensical at the same time. Wilson drew up drew on his own experiences of being kicked out of school in the 10th grade for part of the script. And I think that's what makes it work is that Jason Schwartzman is Wes Anderson. Yeah, I And it's using Owen Wilson's ideas of like what he went through and their own like public school and private school kind of experiences as well were all put into this film. And they always say, write about what you know. And this is the film that they clearly were writing about their own experiences and giving them this skewed little twist. And that's why it feels, it feels so natural. It feels so true whilst also being a bit wild and bizarre. Max Fisher's a fantastic character, isn't it? He's, 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 oh, he's amazing. years old he's, going on 45. He's the worst student at Rushmore Private School because he spends all of his time in extracurricular activities so he's got the enthusiasm to get involved in this, that, the other. He does productions. He writes productions for the stage based on films 
that are completely over the top and nonsensical, but they're absolutely lauded by the whole community. And he's such a quirky character. He's, I, mean, I, I know that Anderson said that he did make Max Fisher based on him, except not as shy, because Wes Anderson's apparently quite uh, shy and reserved, whereas Max is not shy about anything. He will talk to anyone. And that's how he strikes the relationship up with Herman, uh, played by Bill Murray, and they become bonding friends, which is a bit bizarre to have like a bloke in his 40s suddenly being friends with a 15-year-old boy. But that's a Wes Anderson kind of world. He's such a charming character, a great creation that you, you kind of feel sorry for, you pity, but you'd also think you do this to yourself, mate. You're not, you're not helping yourself at all. Marvellous character. I think you described it best when you said this film is a joy, and it is a joy. I remember the first time I saw it being absolutely blown away, falling in love with Rushmore as a film, falling in love with, with the Max Fisher character, the style, the energy, the, the framing, all grew uh, and developed through Anderson's uh, later films, the, the relationship with, with uh, Bill Murray. This was Bill Murray's first role. He'd been a fan of Bottle Rocket uh, and did this for, for much lower cost than he, he normally would do. Um, this was the kind of uh, proto-Wes Anderson film. Bottle Rocket's an interesting film. Looking back on it, and I saw it recently, and, I, and, I, and I've got a lot of love for Bottle Rocket. Owen Wilson's fantastic in it. It yeah. doesn't feel like the Wes Anderson films that, that we know now. And to some extent, neither does Rushmore. This was a kind of, a, shall we say, a work in progress for, for the style that, that you, is clearly now a Wes Anderson style. Yeah, his colour palettes that he developed in later years isn't present yet. His symmetrical framing is kind of present, but not quite as refined. And his, his, mo his tracking of camera motion from like one point and then a quick swift pan is almost there, but not as fluid as it becomes in later films. But it's all kind of, it, it's like a testing ground that works. And it's his use of music. This is the film in which his use of music became key to the film. I mean, you've got Unit 4 Plus 2, the creation, Kinks, John Lennon, Cat Stevens, The Faces, and in my favourite scene of the whole film, a brilliant use of the Who's a quick one while he's away. Yeah. With the, like, get, like, basically them, him and Bill Murray fighting and plotting revenge on each other. And it's that slow motion sequence as the lift door opens and he walks out, takes the gun out of his mouth and sticks it on the wall. And that was the point when I first watched the film that I was like, I love this film. I love this director. And it was the time when I rewatched it this week and I went... And I really do love this director, and I really do love this film. I, I'm a massive, massive Wes Anderson film, and exactly this film, this film sold me on 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 the rest of his career. Uh, it created the relationship between him uh, and Bill Murray. Bill Murray has been in every single Wes Anderson film since. The, the style of the film, uh, the unique cinematography that that uh, when, uh, Wes Anderson has become known for, started here. There's a sense of colour that he uses as, as part of heightening the, the reality. The, the little montage sequence at the beginning where we're introduced to uh, <laughs> uh, to Max is almost like French New Wave filmmaking. There's there's so much going on to this, as, as well as being a, a, a very simple film about a relationship. It, it's, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful film. I'm, I bought the soundtrack when it came out. I loved it that much. You, you're right. The, the way that, that Anderson uses music and, and use yeah. and use odd choices of pop songs, especially sort of yeah. British Invasion stuff. It, it's it's fantastic, and in in every way, as I say, apart from being a proto Wes Anderson film, it it stands on its own. Um, it stands within the reality that that Wes Anderson's created. It's nicely off kilter. It feels like a cult film, but I think it's more than that. I think there's more going on for something. Um, I, I can't I can't say enough about it without without bursting into tears and, and shouting I love you at it. <laughs> I mean I I love the dialogue exchanges. I love the subtle wit within them. I mean you've got um Magnus, the Scottish kid, like saying, Why didn't you just it's off Fisher, your dotty wee skid mark and Max replying with, Is that Latin? <laughs> and <laughs> things like that just just make me crease whenever I watch it. And even though I've watched this film at least once every year, I regularly go back to it. I've never grown tired of it, and I still find myself laughing. Bill Murray is fantastic in it. Apparently, they had storyboards for what he was supposed to do, but he was given a lot of freedom to just improvise on set. 
And so things like him intercepting some kids playing basketball and missing the shot were just in there because it's Bill Murray. Just let him do it. Absolutely brilliant. And I mean, I've mentioned the plays, but let's be honest, you'll never see a better interpretation of Serpico than Max Fisher's interpretation of Serpico with people dressed up as nuns and everything else. Absolutely brilliant. Did you ever see the, uh, or did you ever get the Criterion Collection? I've not, no. Um, which I, I have, which has got the audio commentary by by Anderson and, and, and Owen Wilson. But there is a fantastic, and I think they were used for the MTV Awards. They were, there was the, um, Max Fisher's theatrical adaptions of Armageddon, The Truman Show, and Out of Sight. <laughs> and they were the, uh, the, the uh, DVD extras on it. And it was, you know, all, uh, that's how much I loved this film. I, had, I knew once I'd seen it, I had to own it because I would go back to it time and time again uh it's it's people say and you must get this and i'm sure our our listeners get this why do why do you go out and buy movies or you know why do you collect movies the same way that we listen to songs over and over again they take you back to a time when you first heard it or in this case you first saw it they they give you a memory they give you an emotional push everything about the first time i i saw rushmore i can tell you where i saw it I walked away and and fell in love with this 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 film, and I'd never seen anything quite like it. And I feel that with every Wes Anderson film, I have so much love for for everything that he does. I have I've, I have least favorites, I have favorites, but I'm never disappointed by a by a Wes Anderson film. Yeah, I mean, uh, this was his first film that he not only directed and wrote, but was also a producer. Well, he was an executive producer on this. Every one of his films after that, he had full control over. It's good that the industry will fund these films that maybe won't be hugely profitable just to let a director have their creative vision and have fun. I would hate to see someone like Wes Anderson get given $150 million and then get walked over by a studio. Uh, that's not going to happen to a degree. I, know, I, think, I think the fact that he, he is such a independent filmmaker at heart you know a, a big studio wouldn't have made made budapest hotel it just just wouldn't it's just his style you know budapest hotel which is the most wes anderson looking film that wes anderson's ever made uh, it's pure wes anderson everything from start to finish low budget of 25 million and raked in almost 200 million so that was his most successful film Isle of Dogs, we don't know how much it cost to make, but what a film that was. I love Wes Anderson. I've loved every one of them. And whenever one of his films come out, it's always going to be within my top three films of the year that it comes out. I will always go back to a Wes Anderson film and still love it and still fall like for all the beats and all the rhythms throughout it. And and the announcement of a, of a Wes Anderson film coming out, I just start salivating because I know that I've got something to look forward to. Just before we wrap this up, a quick kudos to Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson is, uh, has, has done some very trashy films, but let's not forget that Owen Wilson is a, is a great writer. He not only uh, co-wrote this, he co-wrote Royal Tenenbaums. You know, his, his career is interlinked with Wes Anderson's. I'd like to see them do more, more together again. Uh, I've got a lot of love for, for uh, Owen Wilson. Forget about some of the films where it aren't so great. I, you know, I think I think Wes Anderson is um, Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson's relationship is, is is fantastic. I'd like to see them write together much more. Yeah. If you want to see a film that is pure joy, that will will make you smile, make you cry, make you laugh, and and also make you sing, because you will not leave the viewing without having uh, the faces of Ulala in your head forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was Rushmore. So as I said, we've been doing deep dives because we've not been able to do the reviews that we want to bring you. We set ourselves uh, some interesting choices, and I think we are going to sort of go to one of the pinnacles for such an Oscar-winning film as our, our next film, which was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. What can you tell me about why you've been sent over here? They think you've been faking it in order to get out of your work detail. Do I look like that kind of guy to you, Doc? Medication time. Mmm, yummy. Do you want to say something to the group, Mr. McMurphy? Another thing, Doc. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. 
Want to watch the ball game? Baseball? I only count nine votes, Mr. McMurphy. I want that television set turned on! The Chief! Nurse, man. Sit down! He's dangerous. Hey, what the hell is going on here? Oh, How about it, you creep, you lunatics? <laughs> you think you're crazy or something? Well, you're not. You're not. Uh, directed by Milos Forman, based on the 1962 uh, novel by Ken Casey. The film came out in 1975. film stars Jack Nicholson as Randall Murphy, a new patient at a mental institution that features supporting cast from the amazing Louise Fletcher, uh, William Redfield, Will Sampson as the chief, very, very young Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd, and Brad DeReef. This film has tons and tons of Oscar plaudits when it, when it came out. It was one of those which just was it was a, a a huge success the film had originally been uh, a broadway stage show which starred kirk douglas in the role of mike murphy but eventually kirk douglas who was trying to get the film made sold the film rights to his son michael who succeeded in get the film produced uh but douglas at this point was uh, too old to play the role he was nearly 60 so the role went ultimately to jack nicholson who was at this point the top of his game so looking back on one Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, it's a film that I've seen many, many times. I've seen the stage production, which which was amazing. What's it like going back to moment of, of a kind of a filmmaking that, that doesn't really exist anymore? Where do you think it sits nowadays, Andy? Is it a film that, that a modern audience can, can look at again? What was it like revisiting it? Revisiting it, it, it made me love it even more. And I think this is one of those films because... The location is within a mental institution. And although institutions have changed a lot over the years, there's still a public perception of what they look like that looks exactly like this film, which I think makes this film feel almost timeless, that you could watch it now and still see the relevance of it today. The the, the casting and the characters that the, play, the cast are playing are all archetypes of mental illness that we're all aware of. And I think in this day and age when we're a lot more aware of mental health and we're a lot more aware of mental health issues, I think there's a lot that people will recognise within each of the characters in here. Yeah, because the film's set in 1963 uh, at a mental health institution, which hopefully you would like to think doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, I think having the knowledge that you'd like to think that it doesn't exist anymore makes you actually be horrified by some of the activities that go on in there more than what you maybe would have been, would have done when you were just watching them as an observer without the knowledge of mental health back in the 70s when it got released. There's a lot of things that really make this film stand up, and one of them has to be the fact that they actually shot it in a mental institution. They used an actual... Uh, they used the Oregon State. Yeah, including some of the actual cast of nurses and doctors are actual nurses and doctors from that mental institution. Uh, the Dean R. Brooks, the director of the state hospital, is the director of the state hospital in the film. And apparently, I've read somewhere that during filming, he, he correctly diagnosed William Redfield, one of the cast members, with uh, leukaemia during the filming of it, which went on to kill him 18 months later. Having it set in an authentic setting, it was lit authentically as well. There was no manipulations of lighting rigs and everything. It was all using natural light through windows. So it feels real. And so it never feels artificial. And you feel like you're in that institution with them. There's so much to love about this film. that The casting, that even the minor cast, which are all, we're all either stage people or new people to film, are all great. But the, the dual casting of the roles of Nurse Ratched, uh, Louise Fletcher, and McMurphy, played by Jack Nicholson. Who was at the top of his game at this particular point, really. They are both perfect. Uh, the book plays Nurse Ratched, it describes Nurse Ratched as, as a grotesque. She's a real nasty piece of work. She's purely sinister. But casting Louise Fletcher, who's very soft-spoken and very soft-faced a lot of the time, means that you, you can kind of see her point of view at times. And I read an interview with her 
where she said that she approached the character as though she genuinely cared for the patients, but went about things the wrong way. And you can see that in the performance, that there's moments in the film that you actually go, well, actually, she's only trying to do the best thing for these people. So she's not the bad guy. Because in the, in the book, it's blatantly she's the evil and McMurphy's the good. But they play it in this, that both of the, the lines are all blurred, that look like Nurse Ratchet is just misguided. And Randall McMurphy is very selfish. And at times he cares, but other times he's doing things for very selfish reasons. And you have to remember that the reason that he's incarcerated in here in the film is statutory rape of a 15-year-old. And he doesn't seem to care much that um, what he did was illegal. Yeah, because he's not mentally ill at all. He basically makes the choice of, of going to this institution as opposed to going to prison. Yeah, so he's he's trying to manipulate the system. And he's trying to do everything selfishly. It's just that he, he grows to like the people who he's alongside at the time. But it, it plays beautifully with those two, both playing very grey area characters that at points you'll be rooting for either side of this battle. And it is a battle for the souls of the patients. Yeah, they're, they're almost casualties of, of, of this bigger war between these these two leading characters. And, and, and the interesting thing about this film is that at times it's a comedy, out and out, hysterically funny. And then flips a coin into into moments of of, of tragedy that are that become almost profoundly disturbing. The cast apparently more or less lived through the whole shooting in the institution, so they kind of got into routines of what the patients would have been in at the time, and they were encouraged to improvise like whenever they could. They could throw out if something got thrown out as an idea do it if they think something fits into it and with with you know with names like christopher lloyd william redfield danny devito and scatman Crothers, of course you're going to get some improvisation going on and uh, interestingly um, scatman Crothers doesn't seem to have a very um, lucky streak when he worked with jack nicholson in films <laughs> <laughs> in this film he um, he clearly loses his job and in another film he gets an axe in the chest but <laughs> yeah but maybe uh, maybe some <laughs> personal choices you've got to reconsider um, I mean, this is a this is a fantastic film. I mean, it's it's one of those where the plaudits it, it gained and the Oscar nominations it, it, it had are are justified because on on every level, and you may go back and and have to reassess it because this is a film made in the seventies, but this is what for me seventies filmmaking was all about. It was that uh, you could create grown up films with with grown up issues, use. Uh, top name cast and still be a, a, a considered to be a, a huge hit at the box office in a, in a time when you know there were edgy edgy filmmakers doing doing incredible work that's why the 70s will always be my favorite period for filmmaking but it is it's a tremendous film deserves all the plaudits that he that he got uh, deserves to be recognized i mean i think it's in it's been recognized as being one of the the greatest films uh, in a, in american film history five big the big five academy awards uh, nicholson won best actress was louise fletcher best direction best picture best adapted screenplay this is one of those films that that deserves everything that you always hear about it if you've not seen one flow of the cuckoo's nest and and to understand why it's regarded one of the great american films then you just have to see it and even now, all these years later, it, it still packs a punch and you forget how great Jack Nicholson was in his heyday. Oh, it, he's absolutely on fire through this film. That's not to take away from the, the scene-stealing moments of Danny DeVito, who, to say that he never knows how to play any board games would be an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Christopher Lloyd is absolutely magnificent. His facial expressions, his whole mannerisms, and he has like one of the closing like facial expressions of like triumphant joy um, after the iconic ending of the chief's final escape. And he cheers him on and gives that one stir of like, "Raw, you've done it!" An absolutely marvelous cast, absolutely brilliant film, and. It, it, even though I've seen this film multiple, multiple times, and usually when you've seen a film so many times, when you rewatch it, your mind drifts occasionally, you get distracted because you already know what's going to happen. But every time I put this on, as soon as the film starts, I am in there with them and I don't look away from the screen and I'm caught up in the drama. Like you say, it's amusing. It plays quite well for laughs at times and it doesn't feel forced. It just feels natural comedy. 
it's a film with hope, it's a film with sorrow, and it's a film which really does cover the whole spectrum of emotions. It's not often we get to say a film is perfect, but then again, we can this, say... This is a perfect film. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. So, as you know, we've not been uh, not been reviewing films in the cinema. I guess what we could do is we could review some of the stuff on Netflix, but I'm so yeah. behind on stuff that's on Netflix right now. So much to view at the moment. As I said, I was, I'm still going through... Um, Walking Dead. I'm literally two episodes off. I think I'm trying to do is get get some of the series that I've got just been hanging yeah. around and get those in the can before starting anything. Get through new. the backlog. Yeah, and there is, you know, even in lockdown, there's still a backlog. So <laughs> at this time, we do a deep dive instead of doing a, a critical review on anything. Uh, and with the passing uh, just the other week of Joel Schumacher, uh, Andy and I decided that The Lost Boys is a perfect film to do. Uh, a deep dive on, and also a celebration of such of the life of Joel Schumacher. Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. The Wyatt! The Flying Nun! I'm your brother, Sammy! Help me! Stay back! Stay back! What's happening to me, Star? Get yourself a good, sharp stick. Drive it right to his heart. You're a vampire, Michael. My own brother, a damn blood-sucking vampire. Well, you wait till mom finds out, buddy. When a vampire buys it, it's never a pretty sight. Michael, they're coming! Oh, shit! And before we talk about Lost Boys... I found a very, very interesting fact out about Joel Schumacher, which is a little bit shocking, incredibly uh, impressive. But Joel Schumacher, in his own words, and he passed away at 80, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, Has a a kind of, well, a very interesting uh, claim that um, left me speechless. In fact, um, so much so... Well, so much so that I'm, I'm, I'm more in admiration than I've ever been about him. And it's nothing to do with his his, uh, his films. And if you know this, it's absolutely fantastic. But he certainly claimed that he has had in his lifetime or had in his lifetime, had sex with up to 20,000 partners. He says he'll never, he never would have kissed and told, but 20,000 par- uh, partners. Now, it's amazing. <laughs> and I'm, I'm incredibly <laughs> impressed. Uh, so he passed away at uh, at eighty. So I'm just, I've been thinking about doing the maths, and he's never going to kiss and tell. He said he's sex with famous people as well as that. He's had sex with married people, and uh, and the, and all the names will, went to the to the grave with him. But um, it's not. He says it's not for for a gay male because it's available. It's just that he's had he's had twenty thousand uh, partners. So I, that's got to be what roughly. If he started having sex at 16, 300 lovers a month? <laughs> That's crazy. Where did he find... I mean, he directed movies as well. Where did he find the time? No idea. Incredible. Anyway, I'm going to leave that to... to the grand old Duke of York had 10,000 men, but, you know, that's well and truly knocked out of the park, hasn't it? <laughs> Joel Schumacher was there. He'd have, he'd have had, him, had him in bed. Uh, I mean, the, the, uh, anyway, uh, it should have been my neat thing because I think it's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> What's your neat thing? <laughs> Joel, you know, Joel Schumacher's sex thing, life. Joel Schumacher's sex life. I think it's, it's absolutely incredible. As I said, I've spent ages trying to – I read the story on the Huffington Post – and I've been trying to work out the math ever since. But I kind of put it down to it's a roughly around 300 or so uh, 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 partners uh, uh, partners a month. I don't know where he found the time. 
Well, thankfully he did because he gave us the Lost Boys. Now, Lost Boys came out in 1987, uh, directed by Schumacher, as we said. Uh, screenplay written by Jeffrey Boehm. Starred Corey Haim, uh, Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, Jamie Gertz, Corey Feldman, Diana Weist, uh, Alex Winter from uh, Bill and Ted, uh, Bernard Hughes. And the, the title is a reference to the Lost Boys in J.M. Barry's story, Peter Pan and Neverland. But now it's about... Uh, teenage vampires who, of course, never grow up. And it was shot in around Santa Cruz, which was renamed for the film. And not only was it a big success when it came out, but it's also become it's it's become a cult classic as well. And um, a kind of go-to, go-to movie for a lot, a lot of people. It's not a film, interestingly enough, that I love. But I think you might have a different opinion than I do. I, I have, a, I mean, when I rewatch this, I... I found myself really enjoying it. And it's a very light story. A broken family moved to Santa Carla, uh, the murder capital of the world. And the eldest son, Michael, played by Jason Patrick, finds himself recruited by the mysterious Davids to become like them. And like them turns out to be a vampire. And and that's basically it. He He's getting tempted to do his first kill and become a full vampire, whilst... His younger brother, Sam, played by Corey Haim, meets up with the Frog Brothers in a comic shop played by Corey Feldman and Jason Ulander. And those two are self-proclaimed vampire hunters and give him comics about vampires as survival guides for Santa Carla. It's light. It's fun. It's heavily, heavily embedded in the era it's made. And when you rewatch this film, you have to throw yourself back to living in the late 80s because you don't get more 80s than a greased up Tim Capello on a saxophone. And that that whole moment of that film just makes you go, whoa, this really was a weird time. Uh, it, yeah, it was. It, me- this was the 80s <laughs> through and through. The way it looked, the the, the design, uh, it's, it's that music video aesthetic that runs all the way through it. It feels like an elongated music video, doesn't it? Yeah, you've got music by Echo and the Bunny Men in there. You've got In Excess and the iconic uh, theme tune Cry Little Sister by Gerard McMahon. And it, it, it is a music video put into film. But this film, for me, this always captures me because of Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland in this film is magnetic. And I can actually understand. Whereas, like, you look at it and because everything happens so fast, it's like, why is Michael so quickly hanging on to these scumbags? Why is he drawn to them? But watching how Kiefer Sutherland plays, and you can actually understand the magnetic allure that you want to be part of his circle for some reason, even though you know he's a bad guy, even though he seems wrong. There's something about him that draws you in. And that, for me, is what this film all hangs on. It hangs on Sutherland. And his portrayal is so good in this film that you actually think that there must have been some tragedy when he wasn't a vampire, that pushed him to this life. And the, inside his soul, there's something good trying to fight to get out. There's moments in the film that you actually think, oh, he could be a good guy in, in inside somewhere, but then he turns into a nasty piece of work. It was a star-making turn for, for, for Sutherland, wasn't it? I mean, it was the film that, that really launched him. And it was it was the era of the, of the Brat Pack movies. He'd been in Stand By Me the year before, um, again with... Uh, Corey Feldman, uh, but that didn't really put him on the map. It was this film that, I mean, it was sold around him. The posters that growing up in bedrooms were the iconic image of him. You know, it was, all, even though he wasn't the lead character, when you look at it, it should be Jason Patrick. Jason Patrick should have been the lead, but Kiefer Sutherland was the lead. You see, I, this film never really resonated for me because it's, it's kind of all over the place. The, the, the parts of it which I absolutely adore, I think the vampires are fantastic fantastic making them teen vampires because the original script was was much more uh, of a homage to uh, to peter pan and they were they were children but uh when schumacher got involved and he'd just come off saint elmo's fire uh so yeah. it wasn't it wasn't the ideal choice for it and he brought brought with it this sort of teenage this sexual teenage aesthetic to him those are the elements that i like it's it's the frog brothers that let it down for me because then it becomes vampire goonies um, some of the humours misplaced, um, and it just—it's just a—it's just a, a, a moving train of a film. It's—it never seem, seems to—it never seems to sit still long enough to go. It's—it's it's a spoof. It's a comedy. It's a horror movie. It's a teen angst film. 
uh, and and that's always thrown me out of it. I, I love the aesthetic, and it's and it's so Joel Schumacher in, in in its aesthetic, which he was he always was, you know, a very very visual director. So I I don't have the love for Lost Boys that a lot of people do. I, I mean I don't have the love for Goonies that a lot of people do, but I know it's a film that that really set a style, and really kind of invented that music video horror look and he and he kind of came back and did it again didn't he with with flatliners yeah. that had a very very similar aesthetic in in a in a different story why do you think it's lasted so long why do people do you think resonate still with lost boys why is it considered a classic i think it's purely keith sutherland i do think that purely it's his presence in this film that makes it something more than what it would have been he is such an iconic He's the kind of vampire that everyone thinks, oh, if I ever became a vampire, I want to be that cool. I want to be that magnetic. I want to have people close to me like that who, like, look up to me and everything. He is the central focus point. And you can, because he's so alluring, you can understand why people would want to be around him. And so it makes it more than what the film would have been if it had been a quite flat approach done. Interestingly, um, his character... His vampire is one of the only ones that doesn't explode or dissolve away at the end of the film. That, that's because they were the thinking of a was, sequel, weren't they? Yeah, Schumacher always wanted to get him back into a sequel and explore that character further. So he he knew that he was the focus of this film. And he tried to get Lost Girls done. That never got off the ground. There was loads of other plans not off, not off the ground. It wasn't until 2008 when there was a comic book called Rain of Frogs that the character came back. And that served as a sequel to this film and a prequel to the straight-to-DVD film, The Tribe. Which are, which are quite forgettable at the best of times. Yeah, the, the, the Tribe and the third film, The Thirst, are, you have to be a, a really dedicated fan to like them. I watch them, and no, I, I, I'll be happy never to see them again. Whereas Lost Boys, I'm happy to go back and re-watch. I quite like the, I like the, the chemistry that's starting to build between the two Corys in this film as well. This was the first film that they worked on. And you can see their chemistry starting to, you know, really join them because they went on to work together in quite a few projects over the years and became really close friends. And they work. And that's why I'm not so put off by like the Frog Brothers in there, because I don't care about Newlander. He doesn't. Re- he's kind of latched on. But it's Corey Feldman's um, character and Corey Haynes character that link and really gel as the younger members of the cast. It's fun. It's Salem's lot for teenagers, and it's very much set in the 80s. Once you get past all that, I've got a lot of time for it, and I never shy away from a rewatch of this. You can't deny its cultural influence. I don't think without Lost Boys, you wouldn't have had... um, You wouldn't have had Twilight. You wouldn't have had Buffy. (laughs) Um, Even what we do in The Shadows referenced it. Uh, yeah, in in the first season, so I think it's I think it's iconic. For me, the perfect vampire film that came from that, which is which is a, a Lost Boys, kind of outglossed it was was Near Dark. I've got a lot of love for Near Dark. Uh, 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 quite similar movies in 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 many ways. You mentioned Buffy, and a term used in Buffy quite frequently is that someone would vamp out, and that term was originated from the Lost Boys. Um, there's a lot of things that you put into culture, including that you're eating maggots and worms, Michael, worms, which has been emulated by other films with them influencing them to see something that they couldn't, that wasn't actually there, and then play to comedy effect in what we do in the shadows. Now, <laughs> we know that this was a, a Schumacher film. It nearly wasn't. Richard Donner was originally lined up to direct it. Uh, he stayed on as a producer, uh, he went on to do Lethal Weapon because the the, the script wasn't wasn't done, uh, but as we said with with Schumacher, it, it's his it's his style that's that's painted all over it, and and he and he definitely gave it that that music video style. As a director, you know he's he's been he's much maligned for for the Batman films, and to some extent with with Batman and Robin, which he apologised for. Uh, yeah. Deservedly so, but he had a great career and 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 did some iconic films. Outside of this, outside of Lost Boys, and we mentioned Flatliners, which uh, I, I think Falling is a down, much yes. better, much better film than than Lost Boys. Falling Down is one that stands out for me. Uh, and right up to Phone Booth, which was you know an entire film yeah. set in a phone booth. He was a, it was a it was a very very stylized director. Uh, say the Batman films have a tendency to mar the stuff that he's done. He did subsequently and and previous to it. I, I love uh, say Elmo's Fire. 
Um, he, he was flashy. He was a flashy director. He knew how to use colours. There was, there was a twinkle and a little bit of sparkle in the films that he's made. And, and I put that down to the fact that he started out in, in costuming. Um, uh, he, he was a, a camp individual and there, was, there were elements of camp in, in a lot of his films. Uh, but he's he, he'll be sorely missed. I think he was a, a a one of a time director. I don't know about what you what you think, Andy. Yeah, very much so. I mean, um, after we recorded last week's show, I I added a bit towards on the intro uh, to talk about his passing because it literally the news of that literally came in half an hour after we finished recording, and in that I mentioned a lineup of films that you know resonate with me from the director, and yeah, he, he was a staggering director he he could tackle satire social commentary camp kitsch everything and did it yeah you know, as bad as batman and robin was batman forever wasn't that bad no it, exactly. it wasn't I've bad actually, at all I've got a fair bit of love for that one batman and robin sadly fell under the um pressure to make more toys and that's where it all went wrong but yeah, he's gone on record. To, he went on record to say that yeah, he shouldn't. He shouldn't have been pressured. He should have gone with his choices. He shouldn't have had let the studio push him to do certain things. Great director, great creator, and um, a great a great loss. Yeah, a, a, a one of a, a one of a type uh, a director. And you know, if you if you're not familiar with his work, there's so much to to check out other than than Lost Boys. Uh, as Andy said, uh, well worth seeing is falling down. Highly recommended is um, is Tigerland, which which yep. uh, launched Colin Farrell's career. Uh, phone booth, I, I absolutely adore. When I when I've taught script writing classes, I use uh, I use phone booth as a, as an example of how to write a tight tight script and, and keep something claustrophobic. Yeah, it'll absolutely be missed and and a bit of a legend and and still twenty thousand. Twenty. There's got to be twenty thousand people who are. Uh... Morning, uh, showing morning at the moment. <laughs> and that is it for this bonus episode of some of our picks of the early deep dives. We'll be back next week with a normal show. Thank you for listening once again, and be sure to check out that No Barriers Radio bonus episode this week. I'm quite pleased with the music choices I've picked out.